preaching through the book of Acts, continuing that uh, today. Appreciate some of the good feedback I've had as we're going through this sermon series, uh, looking at the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is doing in the book of Acts to birth the, to birth the church and to empower the church to participate uh, in the mission uh, that God has. And uh, so the church, uh, the church is growing in this book. And uh, some of us found out a week ago, and then some more found out Wednesday night. Uh, but we got a family that's growing. We're excited for Miss Emily Frady, uh, her and Jacob. Uh, Emily is expecting uh, another baby. So if you're glad for that kind of growth, would you say amen? Excited for them and glad you're here today uh, with us. I know uh, I got a real kick Wednesday night because as Jacob was leaving, uh, he taught for me Wednesday night. I came, I came Wednesday night, but I knew with Dad having that knee surgery Wednesday and Mom, I just had contacted Jacob, I guess Monday maybe or whenever, and said, hey, can you cover for me Wednesday? So I came on to church and he did a great job. And when it was over, he was getting ready to leave. And he looked down at his phone, and he looked back, and he said, I, I think I'll get this right. He said, Emily says she wants Fruit Loops. Was it Fruit Loops? Fruity Pebbles. Wanted Fruity Pebbles. And uh, if you've never been with a woman that's pregnant before, she gets what she wants when she's pregnant. That's how that, uh, amen, that's right. That's uh, how that works. Many years ago, uh, many years ago now, couple of decades ago, that's hard to believe, uh, almost almost a couple of decades ago, I was student body president at Welch College, where I went to college. I was a student body president there one year. And uh, I learned a lot of things trying to be student body president and uh, from that experience. And one of the things I learned is that when you are student body president and you serve on that council and you're kind of responsible for planning what goes on the next year and you're responsible for seeing certain things enacted, and you're kind of the go-between between the uh, faculty and staff and the administration and the students. I learned a lesson uh, that has stuck with me my whole life, and the lesson I learned is that every leader who's part of a group, every leader needs a radical as a part of the group. Uh, now, when I say a radical, I don't mean somebody that's getting arrested, and I don't mean somebody that uh, necessarily that's protesting or anything like that. I just mean by a radical... If you're a leader, you need somebody in your group that's always pushing a little bit to get the job done or pushing to uh, make you better or pushing, pushing the boundaries a little bit. And you need that. And the reason you need that as a leader is when you're the one trying to uh, bring people together, you need a radical who pushes the boundaries. So when you step in as the leader, people realize, okay, the leader is, is kind of compromising a little bit or working here. Uh, and the radicals pushing, and it makes the people that don't want to do anything realize, okay, well, we got to do something. And so you, as the leader, come in and say, well, let's let's do this. And you got to have you got to have a radical on your on your leadership team. And I had a radical on mine. He was one of my best friends, and his name was Mark Littlefield. And uh, brother Mark is now uh, University School of Nashville, a very prestigious private school, right next to Vanderbilt University, there, uh, right in the middle of their campus. He does their technology, but in in Welch College, Mark was a radical. Uh, he was always pushing, and it was good to have him on the council. He was on the council with me, and I always liked having him because when he would say things and I'd come in and say, okay, that sounds pretty good, but let's try this, it made the people that were not radical go, okay, we're going to do what Charles said. We're going we're gonna to do that. And so I realized that every, every leadership team needs somebody that's going to push a little bit. Now, there's only one problem with radicals, though. The only problem is if radicals act too crazy uh, or they push too hard, they'll discredit the movement 
and they'll make collaboration impossible. So they can, there's a positive to radicals, they push, they push. So you can come in and get some things done, uh, but there's a negative. If they get too belligerent, uh, it makes collaboration impossible. Well, this morning we're going to see a positive and a negative. Or maybe it's a positive negative that you never thought about. There are all kinds of positive and negative. There's positive and negatives to radicals on a student council. And I don't know if you've ever realized this, but when it comes to the spreading of the gospel, there's a positive and a negative. And we rightfully celebrate here every Sunday the positive, and the positive is that when the gospel comes and you hear about Jesus and you submit your life to him, you don't have to stay bound to sin anymore. You can be saved and you can experience salvation. If you're glad for the positive of the gospel, say amen. But there's a negative. The negative is, when you hear the gospel, if you do not embrace it, you do not believe, you do not follow Jesus, the Bible says that you have condemned yourself. And you stand under the wrath of God when you hear the gospel and you do not choose to follow Jesus. So there is a positive and a negative that comes with the preaching of God's word. And I want us to see today... uh, uh, story in the book of Acts as the gospel is spreading and we're going to see we saw a couple weeks ago that the gospels impacted two types of Jews it impacted the Hebraic Jews that had grown up uh, in Jerusalem and around Palestine it impacted them but it also impacted what, what the uh, book of Acts calls the Grecians and the, the Grecians there means those Jews that had come from other parts had grown up in different parts uh, of the world in the Roman Empire and they had relocated Jerusalem, it also saved them as well. And we saw that deacon ministry rose up because these two groups were in the same church together, but they were culturally different, probably taught different, had some different outlooks, and so there became a conflict because uh, the Grecians, which kind of would have been the outsider Jews that had moved there to Jerusalem, they felt like our widows and our people are not being treated the same as those that are the hometown folks. And so uh, deacon ministry rose up, so uh, they could work together. By the way, and this is not just a free will Baptist problem, and I don't think this is true of our church. I really don't. I, I do not believe this is true, but I've been in many churches where it is. I've been in many places where the point of deacon ministry, when it got started, was to make sure that outsiders and those that had grown up there could get along together in church. That was the whole point of ministry. And I've been in churches where deacons actually function the exact opposite. I've been in churches where people put deacons in place to make sure that nobody other than the insiders ever get their way in that church. You've condemned yourself when you choose that as a church. When deacon ministry becomes about making sure that the group that started or the insiders get their way, you're doing the exact opposite of the reason that deacon ministry ever came into being. And I want to say today, I'm glad that I really believe this about our guys. That never enters the discussion, I can promise you, deacons or trustees. I've never been in a meeting where the meeting has revolved around basically how do we make sure that we just keep doing what we've always done and keep other people that are new to our church on the outside. That is not the heartbeat. If you're glad we have leaders that want to bring everybody in, say amen. We may not always do a great job, but I can say that about our deacons and trustees. That is the truth. So we've already seen... We've already seen that the Jews, the gospel spread to two groups. Now we're going to see that the gospel 
is for the whole world, and we're going to begin to see it begin to move out. And it's going to move out beyond just the Greeks and the, uh, the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews. It's going to move from them. It's going to move out to some other people. And so I want you to see this today. But as it spreads, we're going to see there's both an opportunity and a great warning that comes with the preaching of the gospel to new people. So go to Acts chapter 8. Go to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to see some radical stuff. Uh, and we're going to see some people pushing the boundaries a little bit of where the gospel can go and who it's going to reach. And we're going to see that it's going to change some lives, some for the better, and some people are going to end up condemning themselves in today's passage. So Acts chapter 8. Now, last week we saw that Stephen, uh, a deacon, by the way, Stephen there uh, was probably part of that Grecian group of uh, of, of the deacons. He was probably an outsider. So that's interesting that uh, the first martyr wasn't one of the Hebraic Jews. It was probably this Grecian Jew. His name at least suggests that, that that would have been his background. Uh, Stephen's been killed. And so what happens when Stephen dies? When they kill the first Christian, what then happens? Well, uh, apparently things start getting worked up. And look what happens. Saul was consenting unto his death. So there was a guy named Saul there. And Saul was a, a zealous, young zealous member of the Jewish nation and he didn't want to see this Christianity grow and so Saul consented unto the death of Stephen and at the time there was a great persecution so it spreads it's not just Stephen it's other people a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria so they spread they they disperse because they're under attack except the apostles now that is interesting and I really don't know the full reason why the apostles were able to say, stay. Some people suggest, and, and you're going to see this because the name Philip also suggests that he was part of that Grecian group. Some people suggest that probably what happened, and I'm going to bracket this because this is just a suggestion, that when they decided to start persecuting the church, they went after the outsiders first. The Jews that didn't want to see the church grow, they realized it'll be easier to go after those that aren't from around here. Because they're not really a part of us anyway. And it'll be easier to run them off than it will be to run off the Hebraic Jews. So some people say all the apostles are part of the Palestinian group. They all grew up there. They're all from that area. And so some people suggest that the scattering was primarily those that had come from other places, had relocated to, uh, to Jerusalem, weren't really from around there, that they ran them off first. Now, is that true or not? I don't know. But there's a scattering. But for some reason, the apostles, the Lord does not allow them to be scattered yet. They're, they're still in Jerusalem, whatever the case may be. Verse 2, and so devout men carried Stephen to his burial. They buried him, and they made great lamentation over him. It was appropriate to weep. Because sin had taken this man's life. So it is, there are times that it is appropriate to be sad over what sin has done. And they lamented because they knew we have lost a great leader within the church. Great, a great deacon. What a testimony. They lamented over him. As for Saul, this man that was there when Stephen got killed, he made havoc. He didn't just persecute a little bit. He went full in. He made havoc of the church, entering into every house hauling the men and women that were committed, committed Christians, he committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere. They go everywhere. And what do they do as they're run out of town? Everywhere they go, they were preaching the Word. Say that after me. Say, preach the Word. 
Wherever you go, you're a missionary. You know that? Wherever you go, you're a missionary. You may not go to establish churches like uh, Brother Paul or Brother Hampton that was with us the other night. Uh, but you do go preaching the word. And so they went preaching the word everywhere they went. Verse 5, then we're going to learn about this guy, Philip. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now there's a city there and that's also a region. Okay, so you've got to understand that. This is a, there's a region, Samaria. There's a city there too. Okay, so he went down and preached Christ. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. So this is pretty interesting. It's not just the apostles that the Holy Spirit is upon to do ministry. You've got these deacons that are out here doing it as well. So he's, 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 he's preaching the word. And just like with Jesus, there's this confirmation because some amazing things are happening. What's happening? Verse 7, unclean spirits were crying out with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, why was there so much spiritual darkness in Samaria? Well, look at verse 9, and you're going to get a taste of why. There was a certain man called Simon, and he's probably just one of, of many in that area, a man called Simon, who before time in the same city, before Philip showed up in that same city, he used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. So there's this man with some sort of power, and he's using it over the people. And he's using it not to lift up and magnify the name of God. He's using it to lift himself up. Look at the power and the authority that I have. All right, so, so there's this guy Simon, and he's, he's there, and he's, 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 he's great among the people. Verse 10, in fact, so great, he was to whom the one to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. You want to know where the power of God resides? They said, that man Simon, he's... He's got it. And to him they had regard. Uh, they were deferential to him. Because of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, Philip is not drawing people to himself like Simon did. Philip is drawing people to Jesus. When he preached the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. So he at least, some sort of belief. And we're going to talk about this a little later. Simon, he believes there's something there. And he got baptized. And he continued with Philip. He kept following Philip around. He's been used to being around power. And uh, he sees there's a power greater than his. And he wants to latch on to it. And he follows Philip around. And he wondered. Beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, this next part gets real interesting, and I can't. And we're going to talk about it in the sermon, all right? But, but listen. Well, I'll go ahead and maybe explain a little bit. Of this. Listen real close. This is very interesting. Verse fourteen. Now, when the apostles, remember, they're back in Jerusalem. When they were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had that those in Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. We've seen Peter and John already. They've been before the Sanhedrin. Uh, preaching and getting beat and refusing to stop preaching. They went right back in the temple. So they, they send Peter and John to go see what's going on because now 
Now, Samaritans, they're, I mean, this is a very ugly term, and we don't use it as much anymore today. But they're what, in, in, in maybe just 30 years ago, we just said, that's a, that's a half-breed, you know, that's a, that's a half-breed. And that's a, a, t- a term of derision. That just means, well, they don't belong to anybody. Well, the Samaritans, that's kind of what they had entered into. And we'll talk about them a little bit better. But they were Jews that had married with, with pagan people, and so they were looked down upon. Well, now all of a sudden the gospel's going to them, to those folks? No way. Well, they send Peter and John up there to check it out. Now look what happens, verse 15. Who, when they were come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, time out, Pastor. You pointed out last week that when the hands were laid upon the deacons, they already had the Holy Ghost. They already had this. So what's going on? This sounds unusual compared to other things that you read in the book of Acts. Now, here's the first thing. And I'm just going to shoot you straight. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes upon people in a number of different ways. And that's just a fact. I didn't write the book. The Lord wrote the book. Amen? And sometimes we have things we believe. And we believe them. And sometimes the Lord does something that, I, you know, and I can't explain it. just kind of says, well, that's a little different than what I believe. Well, they don't have the Holy Spirit, but they believed and they've been baptized. Why? And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know all the answer. I know this is unusual Compared to other places in Scripture, I will say that. This seems to be an exception. Why? Some people some people say, well, part of the reason the Lord did not let the Holy Spirit fall upon them yet was because He wanted the apostles to go meet them and to go instruct them and to help them. So some people say the Lord withholds this in the book of Acts so that the apostles will go up and check it out so the apostles will go back to Jerusalem and say, it's true, they really believe in Jesus. So some people say, the Lord did it this way in this one instance, so the gospel would continue to spread, so he, he withheld that. That's how some people explain it, and that might be right. Uh, some people might explain it kind of like my son Owen, if you were here last week. All right, now Owen, about a year ago, Owen told us that he believed in Jesus. And Owen told us that he wanted to be, uh, he, he said, I, I want to be saved. And he had some knowledge, he really did. He had some knowledge there. And my wife and I, we really struggled a little bit. But as we questioned him, and I'm going to tell you why we made the decision we did. And I'm not telling you you have to do it this way. I'm just telling you what we did. When we questioned him, we found out that he was afraid of baptism. That he just said, I'm scared to get in the water. I don't want to do that. And so my wife and I talked to him. And we said, well, a big part of following Jesus is the recognition that there's something in your life that you recognize he wants you to do. Maybe you're sleeping with some woman. And you know, Jesus says, I want you to stop that and I want you to trust me. Maybe you're lying on test all the time. And you know that Jesus is saying, I want you to stop being a liar and I want you to give your heart to me and follow me. Maybe you just live in fear. Maybe you're, you're afraid of doctors. And the Lord Jesus says, I want you to quit being afraid of doctors and I want you to trust me. And so when we, when we questioned Owen... He just said, I, I can't do that. And so we just made a decision there. We said, well, son, we, this is what we believe, that when you reach the point that you trust Jesus enough that you'll get in that water and be baptized, then, you have, then that, that is a fruit, that's a sign that you really believe and you really trust him. And so we just made the decision, you know what, until you're ready to take that step, we feel like we shouldn't make this a public uh, profession. He had some knowledge he knew he believed in Jesus, but he wasn't ready to personally take the step 
where he had to change his life to follow Jesus. See, Jesus told the rich young man that came to see him, the man said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And sometimes we run from this. But Jesus looked at that man, he said, follow all the commandments. And he said, I've done, I've done that. I've been a good Jewish boy. And he said, well, take everything you have and sell it and follow me. Why did he say that? Because that was the one thing that that man valued more than Jesus. And Laura and I looked at Owen and we said, there's one thing that he values more than Jesus right now, and that's his fear of this water. What happened down here? What's going on with these folks? Could be that the Lord wanted the apostles to get there. That could be the only reason. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe another part is, is that they have believed that Jesus saves, and they believe Jesus is who he says he is, but they have not yet had somebody come to them and tell them and explain to them following Jesus is about discipleship, and it's about trusting him, and it's about walking with him. And the fact of the matter is, you've got to determine that you're going to do that because you're going to have to follow the Holy Spirit, not yourself anymore. So maybe they just needed a little more knowledge. I don't know. I really can't tell you why it happened this way. But I can tell you this. God is good, and God did not leave them in that state. God sent them, the apostles, to complete the work that Philip had begun. So that it's okay. Let me tell you something. Some of you have been in churches your life that it's never okay for a preacher. The preacher could never get up and say, I don't know. Because if he said that, that was a sign of weakness or a sign that you might know more than he did. Can I tell you something today? Preachers don't know it all. This is your one chance to amen that. Preachers don't know it all. Amen? Vivian says she don't know it all. Something's going on here. And I hope when I get to heaven one day, I hope the master teacher sits me down and I hope he explains to me exactly what occurred on this day. Now, this should also be a warning to us. This should be a warning to us that sometimes we can have our theology. But if God's got to get people right and get them saved, he doesn't really care what your theology is, amen? That ain't going to stop him. So these folks are here, and they go up. Most interesting passage that I really don't have a great answer for. I just know what happened. He go, they go up, and they go up there and look what verse 17 says then they laid their hands on them those that had already professed a belief and been baptized they laid their hands on them and then they received the holy ghost so this is different than what you're going to see other places in the book of acts but look at this when simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles hands the holy ghost was given he offered them money Ever heard of the sin of simony? We don't use that language a lot in the Old Testament or Middle Middle Ages. I'm sorry, Middle Ages. They would talk about the sin of simony a lot, and that was that was. Uh, let me update it to our belief. That would be the belief of the bad kind of deacon I was talking about, who felt like, well, I gave the church this money, so that preacher better preach the way that I said he should. That'd be the person that would say, well, I I I now I've given to this church, and I know that my daughter's over over here sleeping around with all these people but i don't care she still better be able to uh, lead the church and singing up there uh now song leader i i don't care uh, what you feel comfortable with i'm giving some money so you better pick this uh, song out for me well i know I, I know we've already got this class but i don't really like that teacher so i'm gonna start my own even though it's gonna cause a big stink in the church uh, anyway but i give this money so you better do it and let me tell you what happens to Simon. Now, he wants the whole... Now, it's a little different with Simon. He's not just trying to get his way in church. He wants the power of God. And he feels like he can purchase the power of God 
with money. So what happens? He, he, he offered them money and said, Give me also this power that whomever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Something happened when they laid the hands on those people. Something happened to them. One thing that happened is I'm, I'm certain of this. They moved from just knowing about Jesus to realizing it's not just about knowing about him, but it's about going out and living a life that he wants me to live. And they recognized their lives were changed when those hands were laid on them. It signified you're not living under your own power anymore. You're living under the power of God, of his Holy Ghost, to guide and direct you. And when Simon the sorcerer saw that when the Holy Ghost gets a hold of somebody, when the Lord God begins to direct somebody, he realized, I'll never be able to lead them again and get them to do what I want unless I can get control of that power. And he said, I'll buy it. I'll give you the money. Now, who, who thinks that's a bad idea to say that to Peter and John? Me. Look what happens. But Peter said unto him, your money perish with you because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. There are people today that mock the language of a heart being right with God. I hate to say this. There are those that have gotten so high and mighty that they make fun of those that talk about your heart being right with God. Can I tell you something today? If your heart's not right with God, you're in the same sinful position that Simon was in. Is your heart right with God? They tell him. Just like Jesus knew and had an awareness, they look at him and they didn't have to ask. They told him, they said, your heart is not right in the sight of God. Doesn't matter what these people have thought about you, Simon, about your power and your ability. You're not right in God's sight. Repent, therefore, of this. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to God that perhaps the thought of your mercy, the thought of your heart, you may be forgiven. He says, pray for forgiveness and mercy, for I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He says, you are bound in sin. You've not been freed by Jesus. You're not living under the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, letting that guide you. You are bound by sin, Simon. You're a sinner, you say today. Is it possible for somebody to make a confession and be baptized and yet not truly be a Christian? I would say to you today that there are lots of people that look around and it's kind of the you know, maybe thing to do in their family or thing to do, you know, with people they're around and they, and they just do it for that reason. I would say, no, your heart, your heart has to be sensitive and changed away from your sin and changed to God. And I would say to you today, if one time in your life you just went through the motions, but your heart was never changed by the Lord, I would say to you today, don't stay in that state. state. Come and find freedom and forgiveness today you say i can't do that all these people have thought for years that 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 i was a a disciple of jesus listen if somebody else made that decision for you you're not a christian you have to decide to follow the lord now if you're glad that the lord can make somebody uh, that's not been right and everybody thought was that he can make them right say amen well he says right here he says hey you got no part in the sight of god Verse 22, repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God that perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, pray you to the Lord for me. He still doesn't understand. He's still looking to somebody else for his power. See, he once had everybody looking to him, and now he thinks that it's somebody else. He needs to pray for himself, and they've told him this. And he says, pray you to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. This morning, we continue through this book of Acts. And we see today this great opportunity, but also this great, great warning. We see this morning a number of key characters. We see the apostles, especially Peter and John. We see the great deacon, Philip. We see the sorcerer, Simon. We see the people group of Samaria as a group. And then there is the fifth character. There is the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, at work throughout this text. This morning, as we look at this text, we see that when it comes to God, that there is this great opportunity, but then there's also this great caution of what happens when you mock or you think that you can buy or purchase, or you think you can be in control of what God is doing. In the character of Simon, we receive this warning this morning. It's a dangerous thing to, uh, to, to mistreat the character of God, to think that you can take uh, the Lord God and reduce Him to money, that you can buy His power, this God of justice and love and mercy, to think, I'll just buy God off. Isn't that the way the world thinks? I mean, listen, and this is probably the first time I've ever, uh, in seven years I've ever said this, uh, and I won't say it often, but I, I'll make a statement here that I believe and I'll stand behind. As much as I li- love living in Cookville, and as much as I brag on our city all the time, if I tell you what, I'll make it even easier. Miss Ruth, Miss Ruth will amen this from the back. You don't have to look very long at all the trouble we've had in all good great place to live but our city council has been a wreck and i don't know all the reasons why but you know what part of the problem in city councils all across america is people have gotten too used that they can flash a little bit of money they get what they want done and they start thinking i can get anything done in life that i want as long as i flash a dollar bill and i want to tell you something you may go far in this world flashing dollar bills with somebody but when you die and you stand before god those dollar bills won't mean a thing. Nothing. Simon has spent his life purchasing power, using power, and his heart is not right with the living God. Now, in my Subaru, look at this picture right here. Now, I, I, you know, cars are fancy today, and in my Subaru, whenever my tires start to get low, that light flashes on. That's a caution light. And it flashes on, and and when it flashes on, I know, hey, I need to put some air in my tires. You better check that out because they're, they're, they're getting low. And that one little light lets me know, hey, you need to make a change. And my friends, some of you here today, God has given this text to warn you through the character of Simon that you need to make a change. You need to know that you've been playing games with God, and it's time to stop playing games with God. It's time to get serious about following Him. We see the danger. Look again at verse 18. When Simon saw that through the laying of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. But then we get the warning, verse 20. But Peter said unto him, your money perish with you, because you have thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. 
Simon was attracted to the message of Jesus, apparently, apparently, mostly or just only for the supernatural power he saw that it promised. Simon is interested in Jesus, but not interested in giving his life to him. He's interested in harnessing this power. He's not interested in having his own life submitted to the power of God and the authority of Jesus to, to, to defeat and conquer sin. And so they tell him, your heart is not right with God. Before Philip came, the Samaritans are amazed by Simon the sorcerer and his power. They've been amazed by him. Now Simon is the one amazed, and he's amazed at the apostles and their power. But it stopped there. He just wanted power. But the Bible teaches us the opposite. The Bible teaches us that it is when we are weak that God is strong. See, what Simon needed was not just a different type of supernatural power. What Simon needed was forgiveness. What Simon needed was to be washed clean. What Simon needed was to leave the darkness of sin. Let me make this practical to us today. Listen very, very, very carefully because some of this will apply to some people in this room. There are amazing things about following Jesus. Submitting to Jesus has the power to change your marriage, to reorganize your priorities. Submitting your life to Jesus and having the power of the Holy Spirit it gives you an ability to the power of God to deal and walk away from drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and pornography. Submitting to Jesus will change the way you raise your children. Submitting to Jesus will help you speak when you once were afraid to. And submitting to Jesus will help you to shut those lips when your tongue used to control you. But... This is for us, church folks. But if you come to Jesus just for the perceived benefits, as good as they are, and by the way, following Jesus are the best benefits you'll ever get. Amen, church? You come to Him just for the benefits and your heart is not right. Your saving faith is rooted in the benefits and not in believing Jesus and submitting to Him. If your faith is in the benefits and not in the submitting to Jesus, whether your marriage recovers or not, whether your family life changes or not, whether you get the job or not, if you don't come to Jesus on those terms, your heart is not right. Yes, the benefits are amazing, but we serve Jesus not for the benefits in this life as great as they are. We serve Jesus because when we serve him, we get the one benefit that matters. Our sin is washed away and we are saved. Sometimes you say, why isn't God allowing this to happen? And there could be all kinds of reasons in God's perfect plan for why he allows things to happen in our life. But sometimes Jesus allows some things to happen to wake us up and to make us really wrestle in our soul. And to do business with His Word and the, and the power of His Spirit that's convicting us and guiding us. Sometimes the Lord God allows some things to happen to draw our attention to, am I following Jesus for just the benefits? Or am I following Jesus because He loves me? He loves me. Simon, we see a caution. 
But there's also a great opportunity, and we see that in the Samaritans. Read verses 9 through 12 with me again. He says in verse 9, there's this guy, Simon, right? And he's, he's got him under sorcery. Verse 10, they all gave heed to him, least to the greatest. Verse 11, to him they had regard. But then verse 12, but when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Now, I, this probably doesn't hit us as hard as it should, uh, but if you're a Jewish reader reading the book of Acts, when, that, when, when, when Dr. Luke first wrote the book of Acts and they dispersed that among the churches, this is amazing to think about that the Jews are there and they're going up to the Samaritans and, and the Samaritans are accepting the gospel and they're becoming one group. They're becoming one people under Jesus Christ. That is amazing because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. You say, how bad did they hate each other? Well, this past week, Cookville and Sparta played each other in basketball. And I, you know, I played, athle I played athletics up at Cookville, played for the high school basketball team. And, and you know, I'm going to be honest, I hated Sparta growing up. They were our rivals. And I played on some AAU traveling teams. And the best players from Sparta would play with us, and the best players from Livingston. That's kind of how they did it back then. And we would play together. And uh, it was one of the most disconcerting moments of my life when I was in ninth grade and got put on this traveling team with some guys from Sparta, and I realized I actually kind of liked them. It was horrible. One of the worst days of my life as a teenager. I know. I wish your mom was here to hear this. I wish she wasn't sick. Sparta and Cooper don't like each other, and it hasn't changed in sports. They still don't like each other. Oh, last Tuesday, they played each other in basketball. And I took the boys to the game. And we were there watching the fans. And over here, you got the Cookville fans. And then up top, now that's actually in Sparta, but that's where they were sitting in our gym too. The Sparta fans were up top, and they were sitting right above me and my boys. And Ethan and Owen got a whole new education Tuesday night. They learned words they didn't learn in church. They learned chants they didn't learn from mom and dad. And they, you know, these fans are going back and forth. And the gym was packed. It came down to the last second. Cookville beat them at the very end of the game. Ethan and Owen, they were just getting into it. Laura and I had to keep telling them, boys, sit down and calm down. Sit down and calm down. They were just reared up. There's this video online now. And you can see at the very end of it, you see Owen going, woo! Jumping around. Y'all never thought you'd see me do that. Some of you. He's ju Owen's jumping up and down. Well, now Ethan's in third grade, so he's hearing these chants. And there's this one chant that's not very nice, and I'm not going to repeat it. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not nice. It's not a nice chant. And they heard, they heard the cookville saying it, yelling to the Sparta people that were above us. And boy, Ethan was listening. And, uh, he, you know, he's third grade. He's hearing these chants. And we get home Tuesday night. And I tell him, it's a late night because we've been at the ball game. I said, go brush your teeth. Mom gave him a bath after the bath. I said, brush your teeth. I'm going to go brush mine. I'm going to tuck you in. So I brush my teeth, and I get done brushing my teeth, and I walk into the bedroom, and Ethan is laying in bed with the lights out, and he's, and I can't say the whole chant, but he's going, Sparta, Sparta, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Ethan, you're a preacher's kid. Cut that out. He's just chanting. You know, this is, the, this, is the, this is the Lord's honest truth. I said, Ethan, you cannot say that. Do not repeat that chant. Definitely do not say it at church and don't say it at school. And he looked me in the face and he said, but dad, it's true. It's true. Sparta's that bad. That's Matthew's from Sparta. Sparta and Cookville in sports. 
And they teach them young, rivals, teach them young. By the way, if you're from Sparta, we love you, right? Cookville folks, say amen. We love you. I don't care, I don't care. You're not supposed to amen you love yourself, Austin, now. That was supposed to be us. They're rivals. They don't like each other at all. The Jews and Samaritans couldn't stand each other. And it wasn't over sporting events. It wasn't over that. It was the type of rivalry that it seemed like nothing would ever change or ever wash away. You say, why did the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other so much? And why is this so amazing that the gospel, that a Jewish man has died, Jesus has died not just for other Jews, but he's died to save Samaritans. Why is this so, why is this so awesome? In some ways, the Jewish-Samaritan rivalry dates all the way back to the days of the patriarchs, all the way back to Joseph. So you're talking hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years before. Who, who is Joseph? Remember who Joseph was? Joseph came from that line of Abraham. And Joseph is the one that his brothers, if you don't know the story, Joseph was a young brother. And he had, he had older brothers. And they got mad at him because Joseph, the, the younger brother, was saying, God has said and told me in a dream that one day you all are going to follow me. And boy, they didn't like it. And dad gave him nice clothes and did all this great stuff. So one day Joseph's brother threw him in a pit. Threw him in a pit, and then they thought, sold him to slavers, and he got sold off into slavery in Egypt. Well, long story short, famine hit the land. And all Joseph's brother had to come down to Egypt. And when they got down to Egypt, and this is making it real short, they found out that Joseph had actually risen from a slave to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. Joseph's in Egypt. The brothers have to go down there because of a famine. And Joseph ends up saving the whole family. And they end up staying in Goshen. And their flocks begin to increase, and they begin to do well. And then one day, the Egyptians, years down the road, the Egyptians don't like this anymore because they're outsiders, and they're doing really, really well. And the Egyptians decide, We're, there's too many of them, and they're doing too well in our country, and they take them, and they enslave them. And for years, the Hebrews are slaves until Moses. And Moses leads the people out of the land. And when God led them out of the land, they took the bones of Joseph with them. Now listen, not only did God preserve Joseph's life when he was in Egypt, but before Joseph died, his father Jacob came with the other brothers, and before, before Joseph died, long before he died, before Joseph's dad, Jacob, died, Joseph had Jacob give a blessing to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And if you've read there in Genesis... When Jacob laid his hand on Joseph's sons and gave the blessing, he made them a promise. And this is what he, he, he told them. He said they would be a fruitful bow by a well. What is he talking about? He's saying to them, you're going to be fruitful and where you live and what goes on in your clan. As these two boys grow up and their family expands in your clan, it's just going to be fruitful and it's going to be as if you're, you're beside a, a water supply. Well, that blessing was fulfilled when Moses led the people out of Egypt and then Joshua took over and they entered the promised land when they finally got back where they were supposed to be, Joseph's two sons, their offspring of Ephraim and Manasseh, were given the fertile land of Samaria, some of the best land in all of Israel. There's already a little bit of tension here because Joseph's offspring get some of the best land. And I'm going to tell you, some of the worst stuff I've ever seen is when a mom or a dad dies and the children get the property and they fight and they argue 
and they get into it, and it's just horrible. If you know what I'm talking about, say amen. It's bad. There's already some jealousy because Manasseh and Ephraim, that blessing came true. They, they, their offspring got the land of Samaria. Later, Israel would be divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom called Israel, they, they would divide. And, and Israel, which, which just became the northern kingdom, and Judah and the south, the kingdom up north, they, they established their capital at Shechem, and then later at a hilltop city of Samaria. So this is a very, very important region, and, and, and it's a region that's, that's, that's great for, for crops and all this kind of stuff. Well, in 722 B.C., Assyria comes in and they conquer Israel. And they took most of the people into captivity. And when they took the Jews out, they brought the Gentiles in from Babylonia and Cathoth and Ava, Hamath, and Sepharephim. You can read that in 2 Kings 17.24. They brought them in to resettle the land. You know what the foreigners brought with them? They brought with them their pagan gods. Now there were a few Jews that were left, especially there in Samaria. In Samaria, what happened, the Jews that were there begin to marry these Gentiles and they begin to adopt their pagan worship. 2 Kings 17, 29 through 41. They begin to take up their worship. Now the southern kingdom of Judah eventually fell as well. But after 70 years of being off in captivity, a remnant of 43,000 Jews was allowed to return to rebuild Jerusalem. When they got back, the people who inhabited, particularly the region of Samaria, opposed their return, tried to undermine their attempt to reestablish the nation. For their part, the full-blooded, monotheistic Jews that had returned home to Jerusalem didn't care for the folks up north in Samaria either, although they were cousins. So there are walls of bitterness that have been erected between these people for centuries among the tribes got even worse when, they, when the cap Babylonian captivity came and then they returned and they're really very different now. For 550 years, these two groups do nothing other than despise and reject one another. But then Philip comes to town. Let me phrase this another way. For 550 years, all these two groups had known was how to despise and reject one another. But then Jesus came to town. You say, I, I, Jesus can't do anything in my life. Jesus can't change my life. Jesus can't help me love those that I hate. Jesus can't change my heart to be accepting of those that I have rejected. Jesus can't change my heart to, to love God instead of loving sin. My friends, today's story shows us that if God in an instant with the preaching of Jesus can break down 550 years of separation between two groups in Jesus Christ, Jesus can save you today. Amen? Today you can be saved. You see, there's Samaria. And there's Jerusalem. But what the whole world's about to find out in the book of Acts, there's also another kingdom that's in this world. And it's a kingdom that at the end of the day is not primarily interested. Now there's, don't get me wrong, the Bible has a lot to say about Jerusalem and a lot to say about Samaria. But at the end of the day, what the Lord God is concerned with is His kingdom and bringing every sinner that will repent into it. So here is the opportunity. When Jesus comes knocking 
It is the opportunity for whatever is hardened in your heart. For however many years it has had a hold of you, when Jesus comes, the opportunity is there. He's knocking at your heart's door to knock that sin loose, to circumcise your heart, to change you and to make you right with him. You say, Dad, I can't be the Christian dad. God wants me. I don't know how to do that. You take the first step and he'll show you the rest of the way. Did he leave the Samaritans there ignorant? No. He made sure his two apostles got to him and the power of the Holy Spirit came. Do I understand all that? No, I don't. But I understand what really matters. And what really matters is this. When you get a hold of Jesus and he gets a hold of you, he will not leave you in ignorance. If you will follow him and trust him, he will guide you today. So dad says, I can't do this. Mom that says, I can't do this. Senior saint who says, I've been living too long for myself. I cannot do this. If he can break down 550 years between Samaritans and Jews, he can break your hard heart as well. And he can break it today. And the main reason he brought you here today, I believe this, the reason he gave you this story just for you today is so you would hear about what happened to the Jews and Samaritans and you would know that there's an opportunity for your world to be changed by God today. But there is a warning in this story. If you think today that you're going to get right with God any other way than acknowledging your weakness because of what sin has done to you and acknowledging His greatness, if you think there's any other way you're going to be right with God, you're wrong. There's only one way, the way of the cross. Would you stand with me this morning? Musicians come, great opportunity, great warning. See, my friends, Jesus is a radical. Jesus doesn't just push boundaries. Jesus obliterates them. When it comes to the boundaries of sin in your life, He doesn't just want a little bit. He wants His radical love to break every stronghold that the devil has in your life. You say, I don't think I can do this. My friend, today the Holy Spirit calls to you and the Holy Spirit is letting you know you trust the Lord, you'll have God's Spirit guiding and directing you. My friend, it's been an interesting sermon. There's been a lot said, a lot to think about. But what matters most is what you do with what the Lord God is speaking to your heart and your mind right now. Listen, you need to come today and be saved. You come. Sin in your life got a hold of you. You come and repent today and be saved. Don't be like Simon. You don't need me or somebody else. You need to walk yourself. To ask the Lord God to forgive you. You do what He leads this morning. Father God, be with us. Be with this time. Be with these people. Lord, may they listen closely with their hearts and their mind, their soul and their spirit to you today. Father God, As you call out to them, may they respond in faith. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.